Last November, the New Jersey Nets announced that Kyrie Irving would be suspended for at least five games. Why? Well, you probably remember if you keep track of sports. He had Twittered on his account, publicizing a documentary video which had in it content that was derogatory about Jews and denied the Holocaust. And when he was challenged on this, he said he did not support any of the false information in the video, and he didn't support the anti-Semitic anti nature of it. But he still defended his right to post the message. It was his personal right to do so. And he resisted any discipline as a result. And though he apologized publicly for the hurt that he may have caused to, to any of his Jewish brothers and sisters, when he was asked directly in the imperative, you must answer this question, with the indicative, yes or no, are you, do you hold anti-Semitic views? And he answered by saying, I could not hold anti-Semitic views because of the background from which I have come. Do you hold anti-Semitic views? And he would never answer that question in the indicative. And because of that, the Nets announced that his suspension would last not just five games, but until, quote, he satisfies a series of objective remedial measures that address the harmful impact of his conduct. As it turns out, he was suspended for eight games, and he lost $2 million because he was not paid for those games. Now, for me, $2 million is quite a bit of money. I don't know about you. For Kyrie Irving, it was just a small portion of his annual salary. So what do you think about that? Cer certainly, we would not support anti-Semitic statements. We would never deny that the Holocaust existed. And, and I don't know about the rest of Kyrie Irving's background. I know that he resisted taking the, co the uh, COVID vaccine and all. So I'm not endorsing all of what he says, but I support his taking a stand for his liberty of what? Free speech. You know, that's at the heart of what we're talking about today, almost. It's pretty close to the heart. I'm not so sure that the Nets were so concerned about making a principal stand. If you stop and think about it, they're in New Jersey, New York, and where do you think a lot of their fan base and their season ticket holders and support comes from? I'm not so sure that if this had been a team in Atlanta or Milwaukee or Dallas that there had been such a stir about it. I don't know. What I do know this is, what is at stake is the freedom of speech, the freedom of press, the freedom peaceably to assemble, the freedom to petition the redress of grievances. And in that same amendment, and this is, here's where we get to the heart of it. In that same amendment, it begins with, Congress shall make no, no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This, friends, that we talk about today, cancel culture, which is an extreme form of political correctness, is beginning to challenge freedom of religious exercise.
Cancel culture is the ostracism of a person or organization from their social background or professional circles for acting or speaking unacceptably. It's a kind of call-out culture that shuns or boycotts persons for going against what are perceived to be societal norms. Uh, I'll put parenthetically political correctness. You know, every society has political correctness. This isn't just our society. It's not just the 21st century. Through all time and history, every society has had politically correct boundaries. So when we use that term, we have to be careful that we don't always use it pejoratively. What we're talking about here is extreme political correctness. Advocates of cancel culture say that it promotes accountability for antisocial behavior. It gives the disenfranchised a voice against those in mainstream society that would try to keep them silent. It gives marginalized groups power to oppose abuse and discrimination. And I get it. You see, they would say those who participate in cancel culture, calling out people like Kyrie Irving, are simply exercising their free speech, and they shouldn't be muzzled. And on that point, I would agree. I would agree that a a professional sports team has all the right in the world to set the boundaries for whom they will pay and fulfill the contract. Opponents of, of cancel culture say that it can lead to a mob mentality, a shallow kind of but volatile cultural outrage where all of a sudden online everybody gets on the bandwagon without knowing the facts. It can lead to intolerance of nonconformity, social bullying online, accusations made with impunity anonymously in a culture of gossip, slander, and libel. The result is that sometimes victims lose their freedom of speech. And worse than that, often their professional reputations without recourse, no matter how people try to crawfish later. The chilling effect is found in public discourse. It dampens it. And it really attempts to make social change, but it doesn't really accomplish anything positively and permanently usually. And politically, it polarizes groups. It polarizes left from right. It feeds this political division that we have in our nation already. And it hardens those groups into opposing positions. Pope Francis has said this about cancel culture. He has said it is a form of ideological colonization. Colonies opposed to each other. One that leaves no room for freedom of expression. And that it ends up canceling all sense of personal identity. How did all this begin? Well, about 10 years ago in the early 2010s, the first instances of this, you may remember, were some who online began to call out satirical and derisive comments about Asians and Asian culture. And probably some of that was justified. And then the Me Too movement, of course, encouraged women to call out their abusers, especially powerful public figures who were men. And some of that, I'm sure, was justified. Since then, it has become a mainstream part of the Black Lives Movement and the LGBTQ movements as well. There are different kinds of cancel culture manifestations in our society. Some are personal, personal uh, canceling. 
Grievances made by, for example, women against powerful men for sexual misbehavior. People need to be accountable, and I understand that. Sometimes, though, it results in defamation of character against somebody that has simply expressed a view that is unpopular in the political or the social or religious arena. And sometimes, and it has happened, it is aimed at pastors and teachers in our churches who are being called out for preaching biblical values that are perceived to be countercultural, labeled hate speech. There's also systematic cancellation by big tech companies, social media, and public broadcasting companies. One of the problems that we have today, I think, is that we have too much centralized control of online accounts in the hands of powerful monopolies. Another problem is a very few number of people have the power of censorship over social media vested in just a few individuals. Another problem here is the politicization of news by the broadcast media that polarizes left and right. And there's nothing new about that, but it sure has intensified over the last couple of decades. Examples of this are what they call shadow banning. That is, blocking users from social media without their knowledge in in this way, making their posts invisible to others. Sometimes it's deplatforming, preventing someone with unacceptable views from contributing to a forum, blocking them from a website without their permission. This also takes the form of online book suppliers, which decide not to distribute a book because they think it has hate speech in it. The removal of videos and posts from social media and online streaming without any explanation. Sometimes the numbers that you find on live streaming accounts where it shows how many viewers there are, there's evidence that sometimes some of those companies manipulate those numbers and and dial them down so that the views don't seem to be as popular. Canceling private accounts without people's permission that promote unacceptable views. Mr. Bean, you know Mr. Bean, Rowan Atkinson? He's actually quite quite an intellectual man. Uh, He said this, we have become victims of the digital equivalent of a medieval lynching mob, scouring social media for any hint of indiscretion. I think there's a lot of insight there. Sometimes it takes the form of business cancel culture. Publishers who cancel the distribution of books because they contain what they perceive to be offensive phrases, such as six of Dr. Seuss's books that they say contain racist or insensitive imagery. This is, friends, very much like the medieval Roman Catholic Church's index of forbidden texts which went long past the Middle Ages into modern history, was only suspended in 1966. It happens with our credit cards, processing companies that will not transfer donations that you might make to a nonprofit organization because they think that nonprofit organization is unacceptable. Sometimes it takes the form of professional organizations in business such as the National Realtors Association, which prohibits unacceptable language or views by its members, and here's the key phrase, in all of their activities. So if a realtor 
publishes something on a private account that the NRA, different NRA, considers to be unacceptable. It could be that the violators are subject to disciplinary action, fines, or even dismissal. Sometimes cancel culture takes the form of legislative or governmental policy. For a long time, for six decades, we've had the Johnson Amendment of 1954 in which churches and pastors are not permitted overtly to participate in political activities. That's a joke. (laughs) The penalty is that we could do what? Forfeit our tax-exempt status. It's interesting. This has only been used one time and taken to court one time. As a matter of fact, there have been some pastors and churches that have, have begged to be sued. They wanted to go to court. But you know what? Most courts will not handle that. They won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. The American Equality Bill, which has been passed by the House again, expands the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to include more marginalized groups. And, and that in itself is a good thing. But the language of the bill, which is before the Senate Judiciary Committee right now, suggests that there might be a little bit of wiggle room there so that if it's passed, preaching against certain subjects, such as homosexual behavior and same-sex marriage, might be considered hate speech. And then we have what's been happening with our monuments and place naming. The Department of Defense announced about a year and a half ago that they're renaming nine army posts to the tune of $21 million to refit the signs because they're named after Confederate generals. We do not support the slavery for which the Confederacy stood. But it's interesting. I wonder how critically they examined all nine names because A.P. Hill and George Pickett, in fact, opposed slavery very much like the founder of Southwestern Seminary. B.H. Carroll was not a secessionist. B.H. Carroll did not support slavery, but B.H. Carroll fought on the side of the Confederacy because he stood for Texas and states' rights. The renaming of places with Native American phraseology, such as, I'll say it, squaw, because I have to say it for you to know what it is. The Department of Interior has designated it a derogatory term and has changed the name of 650 geographic features across the nation over the past couple of years. A California law has required that any place name with that in its name must be renamed, such as Squaw Valley. Pulling down statues and monuments. You know, folks, once again, my ancestors fought on the side of the Confederacy. I see statues of Confederate soldiers on town squares in the South. They're being pulled down. There's a word of warning here. We don't stand for what, some of what they fought, but we have to be careful when we erase all monuments, when we erase all names, and we expunge them from history, and we cannot use them as examples of showing our children what we should not stand for. Hmm. In the recent rioting over the past couple of years, statues of Christopher Columbus, Thomas Jefferson, who was a slaveholder, but Ulysses S. Grant, George Washington, who had slaves but set them free in his will, Francis Scott Key, have been torn down. The renaming of athletic teams, to be politically correct, and and I understand that. We now have the Cleveland Guardians (laughs) and the Washington Commanders. 
non-governmental agencies and organizations. The Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation has formed what it calls its Commentator Accountability Project, where they have targeted by name anti-gay commentators and have tried to use their influence to get them banned from mainstream media. In the workplace and in schools, there is a corporate wokeness that is imposed on employees. There are overly zealous administrators who do not understand the law, and they try to silence their workers, their teachers, and students through intimidation. I think I've covered the field. I think we get an idea of what cancel culture might be like. The nature of it is derived, I think, from three politically correct impulses. First, social. There's pressure, and rightly so, I think, from marginalized groups to redress their grievances. Academically, there are elitist researchers and theorists that pore over records in history to find the slightest thing in contemporary culture that might have some kind of pejorative nature to it, pushing a progressive agenda. And then there's the political impulse. And friends, it comes from both parties, from the right and from the left. Parties leveraging this issue, cancel culture, to get votes. The nature sometimes is intentional. Sometimes it's groups intent on restructuring American society and government that are hostile to biblical norms and evangelical faith. Sometimes it's not intentional. Sometimes it's enthusiastic promoters of secular humanism who do not follow definitive moral norms. Leaders who posture themselves as tolerant leftists or sometimes even tolerant rightists, but their, gener- their agenda is very intolerant. And it leads to a, an atmosphere which has a kind of smug sense of judgmentalism to it, calling out the past ills and guilts of American society as though we know so much better today. There is a cyberbullying that goes on that has a nature of fear and intimidation and causes people to be timid and silent. And it leads to a kind of snitch culture where people gain notoriety on, online by calling out others that are socially uh, improper. There's some warnings about cancel culture, friends. It, it is an extreme form of political correctness. Intolerant of voices that do not conform to the postmodern secularism. Journalist Joel Kilpatrick warns that cancel culture is, a, is totalitarianism when it's taken to its extreme in another name. When the PC police don't want to respond to criticism themselves publicly, they try to shut you up. He says it's typical of what we find in older Soviet and contemporary Chinese communist political tactics. The biographer and historian, many of you have read, Eric Metaxas in his biography of Bonhoeffer says, it's really an American form of neo-Marxism, like what crushed opposition in the Soviet Union. I'm not a subscriber to uh, conspiracy theorists, and I don't think that Metaxas is doing that. He goes back to Nazi fascism, and he said this is exactly what Hitler did. He canceled whole sectors of society. Jews, gypsies, slaves, gays, disabled, religious nonconformists like Jehovah Witnesses. And of course, Dietrich Bonhoeffer suffered the consequences, dying in a concentration camp. Martin Niemöller, you know the quote very well. 
This hangs in my study. Beverly gave it to me. He had been an anti-Semite. And then they came after him. And he spent the last months of the war in a concentration camp himself. And he later then reversed fields. And he supported causes for Jews and others that had been oppressed. In Germany, they first came for the communists, and I didn't speak out because why? I wasn't a communist. And then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. And then they came for the, the Catholics, and I didn't speak out because I was a Protestant. And then they came for me, and what? There wasn't anyone to speak out. There was no one left. You see, what cancel culture can do when it's taken to its ultimate extreme is it leads to what Metaxas calls a spiral of silence. After Alexander Solzhenitsyn was arrested in the Soviet Union, the poet Evgeny Yetushchenko put it this way in 1974, the truth has been replaced with silence, and silence is a lie. The effects of this is the chilling effect of inhibiting publishing and speaking anything controversial. It prevents genuine dialogue. It papers over cracks in our society and doesn't solve problems. It's like a paper mache problem, a solution that looks fine on the outside but has no substance in the inside. It erases history and it attacks our cultural norms and creates a social vacuum. It erodes the moral consensus of biblical norms upon which our nation had been founded, especially those of evangelical Christianity. And it leads to self-censoring, where companies overreact and prevent their employees from expressing their beliefs, where individuals become overly cautious and timid and never speak out, and where the church itself today has become timid and accommodating to culture and has silenced its prophetic voice. So how did we get here? <laughs> well, the Bible says something long ago in the days of David. Psalm 21 says that this was going to happen. Why are the nations, and it happened in his day, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising an empty thing in Psalm 21? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying this, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away the cords that bind us. In other words, get rid of the limitations. There are some external factors beyond the church that have led to this. One is the party political struggle in our nation today for the soul of America. It's as old as the Pharisees versus the Sadducees. It's as old as the Zealots and the Hebrews on one side being against the Herodians and the Hellenists on the other. It's parties in this nation trying to use the leverage of religious power on the one side versus secular humanism on the other side to gain the political soul of this country. There's a second external cause, identity politics. I stand for the right of marginalized groups to defend their rights. But you know what's happening, friends. It's very obvious. This has turned into the minorities controlling the narrative. It's partly as a result, I said, of academic elitism. The capture and the control of many of our university faculties by secular humanists who spend hours poured over the books and research and theories promoting revisionist ideas of history, trying to reprogram American culture. 
Another factor is the centralized control of online media platforms. A small group of wealthy influencers controlling most of global communications. The internet, it's a great thing. When was the last time you were on the internet? <laughs> you know, we live on the internet. One of the problems is it, it empowers crazy people. It empowers people with crazy ideas and they become popular influences. Everyone is an expert with an instant access to information, but not necessarily wisdom. The internet ac accelerates cancel culture and secular humanism. Just like the printing press accelerated the growth of a reformation in Luther's day, Luther's day, the internet is promoting the advance of cancel culture. Just like the Tower of Babel, where they all spoke one language globally and they reached to the heavens. Today we're not far from that, where you can translate almost instantly anything that you say through some form of translation in, in, engine online, and you can communicate it around the globe instantly. Another problem is moral relativity, and you know you've heard me say this many times. It is my personal opinion and my access to information have become my new gods. The problem is that cancel culture has no moral belief system at its base, and it leads to chaos, very much like the French Revolution. Humanistic philosophers like Rousseau put absolute power in the hands of the people. Was that a good thing? Well, that's what happens to some degree in the American Revolution. The difference is this. The French Revolution had no moral religious base to it, and it led to an abuse of that absolute power and a vacillating back and forth between norms with fickle popular opinion. And the leaders of today became the victims of tomorrow's guillotine. There's some internal problems and they rest in the church. Some churches' friends have become too passive and non-resistant. Some churches fear being ostracized, and they don't speak prophetically. They prefer peace and prosperity, and they yield to social pressure. They seek ease and comfort instead of discomfort that comes from following Christ. They become like the lukewarm churches of Laodicea. I am rich, they said, and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And the, word had, the Lord had a word for them, and it was a word that called them to repentance. Some churches have become too seeker-friendly. Yes, we should seek to attract the lost, but we need to be careful. We need to be careful in doing that, that we do not accommodate culture in such a way that that culture then infects us. Tertullian was right to this degree when he asked the question, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Athens needs to talk to Jerusalem, but we need to understand that they're different values. When we are too seeker-oriented, if we're not careful, we will mirror the culture outside and we will absorb it inside, and it will affect our prophetic voice. We need to remember Paul's exhortation from Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that we might accomplish the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Some churches have become presumptuously focused on entitlement. We think that God owes us his favor and protection without suffering for him. Think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We expect him to win the spiritual battle out there without fighting alongside him. We assume he will fix things and he will send revival, and yet we do not get on our knees and earnestly pray for it. 
We expect God to side with us because we consider ourselves to be his people. We need to remember what the captain of the host of the Lord said to, to, to Joshua outside Jericho. Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us? Are you for them? Are you for us or for our adversaries? And what did he say? No. Rather, I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his feet, fell from his feet to the earth, bowed down and said to him, what would the Lord then say to his servant? And the captain of the host of the Lord said, take off your sandals. Take them off your feet. For you're standing on holy ground. And Joshua did so. Here's the point, folks. We don't need to be asking the question, is God a Democrat or Republican? Is God on this side or that side? Is God on our side or their side? We need to ask this question, and you know what it is. Are we on God's side? When we leave here today, we stand on holy ground. Not just here, not just behind this pulpit, but wherever you go in school or at work, at a sporting event, no matter where you are, you're on holy ground, and he expects us to take off our feet, to stand and to take a stand in the spiritual battle where there's great risk and consequence. Some churches are asleep. They're unaware of the danger that confronts them. They're unaware that we live today, friends, in a hostile, cancel culture environment, one that is only half a generation, not a generation, but a half a generation from total paganism. It's a situation not unlike the first century when the church destiny was in question, at least in the eyes of the people around them. The church faced possible extinction. And what did the Lord say to them? What did the Lord say to the church at Sardis? You need to wake up. Yes, I believe we need to be a woke church. I'll say it again. We need to be a woke church if what it means is we need to be awakened. For this is what he said to Sardis, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Let me close with this. Now I'll warn you, the closing lasts about five minutes. Okay. What's the remedy? Number one, you know. Second Chronicles 7 begins how? If my people who are called by my name will turn and, no, if the people that are called by my name will what? Humble themselves and, and pray. Step number one, pray. Pray like you've never prayed before. Number two, fear the Lord. Don't be intimidated by the world when you go out there. Don't worry about cancel culture. Do not seek the world's approval. Jesus said it sort of this way. If the world loves you, that's not a good sign. John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me first. <laughs> you see, if you were of the world, the world would love you. It would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Don't fear the world. Instead, fear the world's maker. For Solomon said it at the end of Ecclesiastes, this is the end of the matter. When all has been heard, it's this. You know what he said. Fear God. 
Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of every person. Thirdly, speak boldly. When you go out there, speak boldly. I pray that this pulpit will always speak boldly. When intimidated by religious authorities in Jerusalem, the apostles prayed. What did they pray for? They prayed for boldness. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then they began to speak the word of God with boldness. Speak with boldness, but also speak the truth. And you know what we studied in Ephesians, speak the truth how? In love. Not being tossed about by every wind of doctrine, not fooled by the trickery of men, not drawn away by deceitful scheming, but we are to speak the truth in love so that we can grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Jesus Christ. This, friends, speaking the truth is the, it is the revolutionary act of our times. It's attributed to George Orwell, but they can't find where he wrote it anywhere. But he said this, and whoever it is, the anonymous author is right. During times of universal deceit, and I think we're there, during times of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. But we must do it lovingly and not with hatred. For Jesus said, what? Hate your enemies. He said, no. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Speak boldly, speak the truth with love, speak with redemptive grace. We need to be bolder, friends. Churches in America and Christians in America need to be bolder, but we also need to be kinder. We will not win others with bellicose proclamations. We will not win them by trying to outshout them. We will not persuade the the few influential moguls and influencers on the internet with angry apologetics. This is a matter of the heart, and only God can change the heart of others from the inside out. And it begins by planting seeds of love and concern for them. You see, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps, if perhaps, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. And last of all, we've got to take a firm stand. Cancel culture creates a spiritual vacuum. It creates a spiritual vacuum of chaos and moral relativity. We know that. You know what that's like, friends? It's just like the first century. Stop and think about it. Here in the 21st century, we're very much like the first century where the gospel had to compete toe-to-toe in a pluralistic and pagan world without any advantage. If we agree with Pascal's view of the God-shaped vacuum, that there is a God-shaped vacuum in every person, now is the day, now is the time of opportunity in this cancel culture of chaos where there is a vacuum. Now is the time when people are starved for the truth and they don't know it. Now is the perfect time for the gospel to fill that vacuum. Our hope is not and the political solution. It's not aligning with one party or another. It's not with castigating one side or the other because of religious or secular human views. Our hope does not lie in Christianizing this nation through political or social means. And you know what I mean. Christianizing the nation is not the same thing as building the kingdom of God. Our hope does not rely on denominational proclamations regardless of whether they're Southern Baptist or PCA. 
They do not rely on denominational institutional programs, as good as the discipleship programs may be in our church. Our hope rests in the kingdom of God, standing for the kingdom of God and his righteousness for all nations, and praying, and praying, yes, for revival, praying for a new reformation in this land, and taking a stand firm on God's word. I appreciate the fact that we're on YouTube. I appreciate the fact that we've not been canceled. We need to operate within the boundaries of the instruments that are given to us, but we must speak prophetically. We must speak forthrightly. I appreciate that privilege, and it's a privilege for us. But we can never be muzzled. We must take and continue to take a stand for the truth, as Luther did, and you know what he said. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant, for it is neither safe nor honest to violate one's conscience. I can do no other. Here, and he was talking about God's word. Here I take my stand, God being my helper. Amen. Wherever you go this week, I pray that you will take a stand, not only on on the word of God, but through the living word of God, Jesus Christ that you will do so boldly, that you'll speak the truth lovingly, and that in all of that, you'll share the grace of God, which is redemptive. But take a stand. As we close, Lord, cleanse the depths within our souls and bid resentment cease. Then bound to all in bonds of love, our lives will spread your peace. God calls you to go forth, to take a stand, and proclaim the living gospel of Jesus Christ. How will you respond today?